We're moving our way through this thrilling book. Last week, we finished Daniel 6, so we are officially finished with the book, right? (laughs) No. If you look at most sermon series through the book of Daniel, guys preach the first six chapters and then quit, and you'll understand why after the next 50 minutes. If you're new to Faith Family Church, we do expository preaching through entire books of the Bible. And there are many reasons why we do this, but one of the reasons is because it forces us to deal with the hard passages. Uh, Some chapters are like shooting a layup, and other chapters are like shooting a full court shot. Expository preaching through entire books of the Bible forces you to take a step back and take the deep shot. And just in the fact that you're a member of this church or you're attending this church or listening to this at this moment indicates that you're willing to engage in the necessary task of understanding the hard chapters. Exposition calls the hearers like the sea calls the sailor. It will batter us and bruise us and we will love it for that reason. There are lots of transitions going on as we approach chapter 7. And the best way I know to point out these transitions is through a chart. So I'll introduce this chart to you today and we will build upon it each week of the series and finish it the last week. Now let's look at the entire book through the lens of the age of Daniel. In chapter 1, he is 12 to 15. In chapter 2, he is 15 to 18. In chapter 3, he is 31 to 37 years old. In chapter 4, he is 50 to 57, just now able to receive the senior citizen discount at McDonald's. In chapter 5, he is 80 to 85, so he's long into retirement. In chapter 6, that's the lion's den, he's 85 to 92. Now notice on the chart, now that we approach chapter 7, Daniel is 63 to 70 years old. Now, he didn't put on some magic wrinkle cream and start aging in reverse. This book does not continue in a linear chronology of events, but reverts back in time to a series of visions that Daniel had. So I want to read the first verse of chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, that's a chronological time marker. On the chart, you'll see the Babylonian Empire ruled during chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. In chapter 5, the Medo-Persian Empire defeated the Babylonians. In chapter 6, this happened during the Medo-Persian Empire as well. In chapter 7, we've reverted back to the Babylonian Empire. But not the Babylonian Empire under King Nebi. The Babylonian Empire under Belshazzar. So chapter 7 takes place between chapter 4 In chapter 5, it is perhaps the most exhilarating and puzzling of all the chapters. It's also, in a variety of ways, the central chapter. The seventh chapter introduces the second half of Daniel. Uh, Towner calls Daniel 7 the single most important chapter in the book. Baldwin asserts, once convinced of the truth, this chapter is proclaiming the reader is in possession of the key to history. Using the chart, I'm going to point out three more transitions you'll see at the bottom. Chapter 7 is the last chapter where the Aramaic language is used. In chapters 1 through 6, God's people were at home in Babylon. But now the transition begins and they are coming home from Babylon. And lastly, the genre changes. 
Apocalyptic replaces court narrative demanding that we change our reading strategy. See, the Bible uses, utilizes uh, various genres and literary styles to teach us God's truth. Let's say that you get up on a Saturday morning and you spend some time relaxing. You pick up a paper and you find the comic cartoon section and you begin reading Calvin and Hobbes, which was a, a famous comic strip in the mid-80s to mid-90s. You finish the comic and you want to study for your small group, so you read a little Calvin and Luther. Once you finish that, the next thing on your to-do list is to install the new kitchen vent above the stove. And so you open up the Calvin Home Appliance Manual and you read the instructions about how to install it. Actually, if you're a man, let's be real, you're not reading the instructions at all. You're putting it together, having 15 pieces left, telling your wife that you know, these were extras that they sent. But you understand instinctively to read all those pieces of literature differently. You read Calvin and Hobbes differently than you read Calvin and Luther. And still not the same as you read the Calvin Home Appliance Manual. No one needs to tell you to read those things differently. You do it naturally. You instinctively, you instinctively know that the sentence that begins with, the stars fall from heaven, the sun will cease its shining, the moon will drip blood, will not end, and the rest of the country will be partly cloudy with scattered showers. The reason is that you immediately perceive the mismatch between the genres of the two phrases. One is apocalyptic and the other is more conventional forecast. Let's continue reading in verse 1. Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Now nothing says, hear ye, hear ye. We're entering a new genre like that. Now let's answer two questions. The first question is this. Why are people afraid of this genre? Well, some are afraid that they will enter it and not be able to understand what they find. Everything seems so difficult to tackle. Mysterious symbols, illusions, enigmatic numbers. And it also doesn't help that preachers through the years have come up with all sorts of wild speculations, trying to match the current configuration of European and Middle Eastern states and how they fit into this chapter. They are over-interpreting every single detail and make it into a secret code book. Something only Sherlock Holmes of the Bible can discern. And they position themselves as the theological sleuth. Apocalyptic literature was not written as a code so Christians 2,000 years later could figure out. Now in addition, some of you are afraid of this type of literature because you have no room for gray. No room for mystery. You only want to read the Bible and walk away with everything in the closed hand. Well, you can't do apocalyptic literature that way. There are things in the open hand, and there are things in the closed hand. The closed hand. There, there are some things here that I am absolutely sure about. The big picture stuff. It's, it's not a question. I'm certain about it. The open hand. There are some things in this chapter that I don't understand. I think I know what it means, but it's in the open hand. And with things in the open hand, I'll do my best not to over-interpret. Saying, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord has not said. 
I also want us to do our best to worship in the mystery. Now, here's the second question. What must we know about this genre? What must we know about this genre? I call apocalyptic literature the 911 genre. Many Bible teachers include prophetic and apocalyptic literature in the same category. But, but I, I don't. I think there's a nuanced difference. Uh, prophecy and apocalyptic are cousins of one another. They share many similarities, most notably both concern the future. But apocalyptic is slightly different in mode and purpose. The purpose of, of AP literature is to draw back the curtain and reassure God's despised and cast off people that in spite of their present persecution and suffering, God is in control and he will be victorious. See, God's people were becoming more and more fearful, wondering if they would ever be restored back to the promised land. And AP Lit is a reminder that God is aware of the suffering of his people and he will bring their trials to an end. On that day that he establishes his forever kingdom. It's also different in terms of the mode of revelation. So the prophets received prophecy in a very direct mode. Daniel and John received apocalyptic messages in a more indirect mode. Visions. All throughout the chapter you hear Daniel say, I saw, I looked. So we're dealing with visual impressions And leaving chapter 6 and going to chapter 7, we are leaving storytelling time and moving into movie watching time. It, It communicates God's message through the use of wild, crazy, imaginative, bizarre, and even head scratching imagery. Aiken says the sovereignty of God is taught via sci fi. Now, here's how I'm going to progress through the chapter I see four movements in the text. I'll give you the movements, then I'll walk through them one by one. Once I am finished, I'll lay out four applications. But we must do the work of proper interpretation before we can do the work of proper application. So the four movements are these. Horror by the sea, fire in the courtroom, rider on a cloud, and kingdom in hand. Let's deal with the first. Horror by the sea. Notice verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, the Bible only mentions basically four seas. The Galilean Sea, which was nothing more than a a lake. The Dead Sea, which was nothing more than a big lake. The Red Sea, which was a, a narrow strip of water. The Great Sea, which was the Mediterranean Sea. So in this vision, Daniel stands on the shore of the largest sea he's ever beheld. The sea was a place of chaos in the ancient world. Seamen would die in the sea. Warring peoples would come to attack by the sea. And the four winds representing all directions, north, south, east, west, are all converging, producing white caps, huge waves. It's a picture of universal chaos. The original readers had a more immediate understanding of this image. Their feelings would be more potent and natural than ours. 
And I want to seek to recover those emotions for the modern reader. I believe God is evoking well-known mythological motifs to create a category for his message. Let me, let me unpack that. Many ancient myths highlighted the struggle between the creator and the sea. Let me just give you one of these mythological stories. There was a fight between Marduk. You may remember he was King Nebi's Babylonian god. Marduk wanted to bring order to the world and Tiamat, who by her very nature as water, wanted to abolish boundaries. And so this, this whole story is about these two fighting one another. Now I could, I could give three other examples of similar myths in that day. But I fear we get lost in those stories. My purpose is to point out that these stories, these stories were pressed deep into the psyche of the people in the ancient Near East. When they saw the sea in an uproar, they knew universal chaos. It is a fight between God, even though they had a false God, God and the sea. Now, on a biblical front, this isn't the first or last use of this imagery of a sea warring against God. Psalm 118.15, God blasts the sea. Nahum 1.4, God causes the sea to dry up. Habakkuk 3.15, God treads or stomps on the sea. Isaiah 27.1, God fights sea monsters, which leads us seamlessly to verse 3. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, differing from one another. So we have confirmed that in the Bible, the sea is a symbol for chaos and hostility toward God. And the fact that these beasts come up out of the sea is the first clue that these beasts are evil. They stand for disorder and hostility to God. These beasts aren't merely PG-13 like the Monstars in Space Jam. They are R-rated like the vampires and zombies of the most disturbing horror movie. Sinclair Ferguson notes that what we have here is essentially a book of pictures appealing to our senses. We are meant to see, hear, smell, and run from these scary beasts as they appear throughout the chapter. Let's look at the first one, verse 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, let's pause here for a minute. Daniel watches and as he's watching, the beast transforms. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Now these aren't even normal beasts. Three out of the four are combinations of different beasts. They are mutant. They, they are hybrid beasts. In Genesis 1, God created creatures not as hybrids, but according to their own kind. And these beasts are distorting God's order. Verse 5, and behold another beast. A second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, get up, gorge yourself on flesh. Now, I, I was studying this week the brown Syrian bear who was known as a ferocious animal who mauled people. This, this bear could weigh 550 pounds. Some believe the bear in our text was lurching 
from side to side, which explains one side higher than the other. I tend to believe he was grotesquely deformed, like the hunchback of Notre Dame. But his deformity didn't make him weaker, but stronger. He's a circus beast gone wrong. Verse 6, after this I looked and behold another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now a leopard is already fast, but you put wings on the back, you have incredible speed. He's a, he's a mutant freak show. And evidently a, a transformer, which I see my little one in the back likes. <laughs> All right, verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. Terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So this beast leaves total destruction in his wake. He's gulping down creatures and people. He's ripping flesh to pieces. He's trampling, stomping on lifeless bodies. More detail in verse 8. Behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and mouth speaking great things. I mean, the ten horns alone make this beast a hideous sight. But now this little horn jumping out like a jack-in-the-box is frightening. And he's controlling, not just with his power, but with his speech. He's speaking great things. He's a powerful orator. Now, let's take a step back. How in the world are we going to figure out what's going on here? Well, the key to interpreting the chapter is found in verse 17. These four beasts are four kings. Now, I'll interject and say or kingdoms because kings and kingdoms are used interchangeably throughout the passage. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise up out of the earth. So this obviously reveals right away that these beasts represent a train of human kingdoms. Now, this was written 2,500 years ago. So the hybrid animals give us no hint as to what kingdom they represent. If this was fleshed out in our day, it would be much easier. Let me give you an example. Nations seem to pick predatory animals to represent them on their flags and currency. A lion, a bear, an eagle. Predatory animals. No one chooses a hamster. Who wants to be represented by a hamster? That's not intimidating. I'm glad Benjamin Franklin didn't get his way. We Americans wouldn't be bald eagles. We'd be turkeys. So why don't we play a little game here while you're at home. I'll, I'll give you a country. And you tell me what, or you tell whoever's with you in the living room, what animal that country represents. Okay? Winner, winner gets um, waited on for the whole day. That's what the winner gets. Russia. A bear. Britain, a lion. United States of America, an eagle. Our political party animals aren't near as flattering. The Republican Party is represented by an elephant. The Democratic Party is represented by a donkey. 
Someone reading 2,500 years from now, a column about a donkey going to war against an elephant to see who would control the eagle would seem weird. But that makes sense to us. A Republican candidate and a Democratic candidate going after one another to see who the President of the United States of America will be. In like manner, these beasts probably made sense to the original readers. The first animal is clear for us, the lion with eagle's wings. That's Babylon. The lion and the eagle were practically emblems of Babylonian power. Daniel would see stone lions with wings on his walks around Babylon. Daniel's contemporaries, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and even Habakkuk, speak of the lion and the eagle in reference to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. So we know this one is Babylon. Archaeology affirms it. The plucking of the three wings, most commentaries say, and I agree, that it's Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation in chapter 4. Literally, God clipped his wings and made him insane. It seems clear throughout the vision that God starts from what Daniel knows and then moves to what he doesn't know. The second animal is a bear. So at first, I'm thinking the Chicago Bears. But the text says this bear actually wins and defeats his enemy, so I had to go somewhere else. Now, I'll deal with all the other animals in an application section. But notice the fourth kingdom, the, the little horn. And the little horn takes center stage. Kill, an, an excellent Old Testament commentator, said that the little horn will get off to a fast start and it will seem like he's going to last forever. Now, who is the horn? Well, there's a, a plethora of options throughout church history. Uh, some commentators say Antiochus Epiphanes. Early Protestants often thought it was the Pope. John Calvin thought it was persecuting Caesars. I tend to think it's Mike Krzyzewski from Duke University. The best evidence, although it's certainly not for sure, is that the horn is the Antichrist. Now, I can't say that for sure. If I could, I would. I can't say that for sure. Although Alistair Begg and Kevin DeYoung and many others who are a lot smarter than me do. Ultimately, I see the horn representing a culminating power of evil. Standing in opposition to God. So, movement number one, horror by the sea. Movement number two, fire in the courtroom. While the horn is still speaking, he's still spouting off. Daniel... He sees something more sizable. Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Wow. Now this is rich. I'm going I'm to work slowly and un unpack this. What was the goal of every earthly kingdom? To last a long, long, long time. What is God called here? The Ancient of Days. These beasts, as terrifying and powerful as they are, are like newborn grasshoppers in the sight of the Ancient of Days. God is big, bigger than even Daniel realized. Human kingdoms are always caught up in feverish activity. You see it on the sea, whether military or diplomatic, but the Ancient of Days was seated. He's never taken by surprise, never undecided, never in a panic about his world. He reigns seated his days are beyond our accounting his time precedes ours his experience is vast 
Empires have come and gone. Rulers have risen and fallen. Economies have prospered and faltered. But he endures. Dynasties have passed away. Dying for lack of heirs. But God is ever living one. Never lays aside his scepter. Never is the throne vacant. vacant. Jehovah is always king. Now... Verse 9 again, his clothing was white like snow. This speaks of his purity. The ancient of days is dressed in righteousness. Now Daniel has been exposed to evil kings. But he sees one now that takes his breath away. A good king. The author is contrasting the ugliness of these creatures and the beauty of this God. The verse continues, and the hair of his head like pure wool. When the text speaks of white hair, it's not saying he's an old man, forgetful and grumpy. It's speaking of his eternality and wisdom. God is wise, not senile. He is eternal, not old. The verse continues, his throne was fiery flames. The fire signifies the holiness of God. Think Moses and the burning bush. Holy ground, take your shoes off. And this throne has wheels. The wheels indicate that God's throne is not bound to a certain place. It has no spatial limitations or restrictions. He sees everything and he is everywhere present and he is everywhere ruling. Verse 10 A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. So so what is this river of fire proceeding from the throne? That speaks of purifying and righteous judgment. In contrast to the wickedness of human government, these other kingdoms, these other beasts, Daniel had been in a government, he knew how crooked it was, and he's longing for perfect judgment. River of fire. River of fire. Verse 10 continues. A thousand thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Now does that sound familiar? From Revelation. Another apocalyptic book. Myriads are before the throne. And I think this may be the kindest portion of the vision that God has shared with Daniel. How often had Daniel had to stand alone for his God? And his eyes are lifted up now to a place where there are thousands and tens of thousands worshiping God Almighty. There he will be home and there he will not be alone. How tender is God's vision to Daniel? The verse continues. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. The court is called into session. The ancient of days does everything by the book. His judgment, as always, will be just. The camera moves now from that amazing, awesome scene to that little horn still running his big mouth. Arrogant braggart. No fear of God's throne. No concern for judgment. Still attempting to dethrone God. And then verse 11. I looked 
Then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Now, here's why I don't think it's super wise to attribute a name to this little horn. The overall picture is is simple. Whoever opposes the Ancient of Days is ultimately destroyed. In verse 11, I I think it's a bit anticlimactic. I was wanting more verses to, to tease out the fight. The fourth beast is slain, and very little is said about it. It's almost like Godzilla versus Bambi. Conor McGregor versus Cowboy. It was over that quick. The culmination of evil is killed and its body cremated in a roaring fire. Who can stand before this God? Movement number one, horror by the sea. Movement number two, fire in the courtroom. Movement number three, rider on a cloud. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now, just like the sea image earlier, the motif of riding clouds has an ancient Near Eastern background. Baal, the chief deity of that culture, is often called the rider of the clouds. Baal was the god of thunderstorms. But, but who is the rider on the cloud in our text? It's the Son of Man. Son of Man was Jesus' favorite self-designated title. He used it 81 times in the Gospels referring to himself. And I don't think it was some kind of accident that Jesus called himself Son of Man. I think in effect he was saying to Israel, I am the one whom Daniel spoke. Now, what does the phrase son of man mean? In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, boys are described as sons of Adam and girls as daughters of Eve. The designation simply means that they are human. This designation simply means that Jesus is human. This true man is what all humans made in God's image were meant to be but failed to be. However, you must see this. The one who enters the courtroom riding on a cloud is not fully described by his human origins. He is like a son of man. For Daniel, it must have been a puzzling picture because this being seems to combine in one person both divine and human traits. Now allow me to make this clear. Jesus... Unlike the beast in our passage, passages, is not a hybrid. He's not part human and part God, part mortal and part divine. No, he is fully man and he is fully God. And, and I'll prove that to you because the only category scripture has for someone riding on a cloud is God alone. Psalm 168.4 Sing to God, sing praises to His name, extol Him who rides on the clouds. Psalm 104.3 God makes the clouds His chariot. Now, now fast forward to Acts 1. Jesus is 
ascended into heaven with a cloud. It was God's movie proving Jesus is the Son of Man and the God of Man. After Jesus ascended, angels told the disciples in Acts 1.11, just as you saw Jesus leave, in the same way he will return. Now what does that mean? Many things, many things. One of them is this. In his ascension, Jesus rode a cloud out of earth into God's courtroom. And when he returns, he will be riding on, on a cloud. Movement one, horror by the sea. Movement two, fire in the courtroom. Movement three, rider on a cloud. Movement four, kingdom in hand. Verse 14. Verse 14 must be read carefully and slowly so that, that its impact and weight is fully felt. And to him, that's the Son of Man, and to the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, key question. When did Jesus receive dominion? When was Jesus given a kingdom? See, many people, especially preaching this text here, they say it was that it's going to be at Jesus' second coming. That this is referring to Jesus' second coming. I don't think so. This was his ascension. This was his coronation. This was when Jesus left earth with his work completed, riding a cloud with his disciples watching, and he went into the throne room of God at that moment and received everything that you see in verse 14. This is not future. This is past for us. And it gets even better. Now, what I'm about to read to you in verse 18 is reiterated in verse 27 but I'm just going to read verse 18. What, what did Jesus do with the kingdom? Verse 18. But the saints of the Most High, what? Shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever? Forever and ever? Wait! The saints receive the kingdom. This is not the New Orleans saints. This is the new redeemed saints. Did Jesus not say in Luke 12, 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure. To give you the kingdom. Big picture. By the first Adam, sin and death came. Adam's consequences had, Adam's actions had consequences for a whole species. By the final Adam, the last Adam, the true and better Adam, Jesus, salvation and kingdoms came. And his actions had consequences for a whole species. One of those consequences is the kingdom he received is the kingdom we receive. We will have the kingdom in our hands because Jesus was pierced in his hands. Now, that's the four movements of the text. So that's proper interpretation. So we have to do that before we can get to proper application. So now proper application. Application number one. Don't be fascinated with beasts. Become fascinated with the one who ordains their territories and will ultimately lock them up in cages. 
Now, that's a mouthful, but you've got it on your screen so you, so you can see it. I'm not going to repeat it. Allow me to nerd out for a moment. The vision of the four beasts in chapter 7 mirrors, in a number of ways, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. So I think you have to interpret Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 together. And to do that, I've given you a chart. All right? Let's look at this chart. We have Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You remember his dream with a monster that had a head of gold and had chest and arms of silver, had belly and thighs of bronze, had legs of iron. You may remember this stone smashed. The stone came out of nowhere, a little tiny stone. Then it smashed the monster, but the stone began to grow into a mountain, and the mountain filled the earth. Well, more than 50 years later, we arrive at Daniel chapter 7, And we have a similar vision, vision of a a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a fourth mysterious beast. And then then a little horn that comes out of this beast. And notice God burns the, the beast, the fourth beast and the horn. And the kingdom is given to the Son of Man and given to God's people. So let's do a little commentary on on this particular on this particular chart. I'll tell you what I like, and I'll tell you what I don't like. Um Babylon. I'm, I'm sure that the head of gold is Babylon. Absolutely know that. God said that. Daniel said God said that. He said, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So we know the head of gold is Babylon for sure. There's not a doubt about it. We're, we're pretty close to for sure that the lion with eagle's wings is also referring to Babylon. So first kingdom, Babylon. But what are these other kingdoms? We don't know. But most conservative historians believe what you see on the chart. That the second kingdom is Medo-Persia. And, and I think dogmatism is unwarranted. But they go after it. And they identify this bear and the three ribs in his mouth. James Montgomery Boyce says that the three ribs is Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. The three nations that Medo-Persia defeated to take charge. The third kingdom, they say, is Greece. Alexander the Great just swept the world lightning fast like a, like a leopard. The, the biggest question is the fourth beast. Some say it's Rome. Rome was the largest empire in the history of the world. Longest standing, 1,700 years. And, and then they even go into more detail with the beast. Much energy and attention have been devoted to tracking down the identity of the ten horns. And, and investigating the other minutiae and the interpretation. We know the ten horns equals ten kings. We know that from verse 24. So that's a, that's a done deal. Now, John MacArthur can tell you exactly who each horn is, how much they weighed when they were born, <laughs> who their mama was, what types of chips they like to eat. I love John. He's a lot smarter than I am. I just can't identify each horn for you like that and, and, and feel at peace. So he, here are my problems with, with the chart. Number one, I don't think they're ever going to resolve this discussion. For example, the Greek empire was certainly fast and, and, and like a winged leopard. But that could also be said of the Persians. And the attributes of speed could also equally apply to Nazi Germany. And, and my second problem with that chart even though I made it, I'm telling you the problems with the chart I made. But my second problem with that chart is that the fourth empire seems to be the last empire before God sets up his kingdom. And Rome exists no more. It can't be revived, except perhaps in a political propaganda. There are no more Roman people. So if you say the kingdom was set up in heaven, then Rome works there. Kingdom set up on earth, maybe not so much. The beast represent 
kings and kingdoms. That's closed hand. The beasts represent kings and kingdoms. That's closed hand. Who they are, that, that's open hand. So the big picture, don't miss it because it's clear. The big picture, the Bible tells us that everything in history is moving toward one cataclysmic event. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Application number two. We live in a beastly world. We live in a beastly world. The, the purpose of Daniel 7 is not to work out the specific identity of the different beasts. Rather, to illustrate that God's people live in the midst of a beastly world. Whatever your location in space and time, frightening beasts array themselves against the Lord and His anointed. Sometimes it's diseased beasts. COVID-19, cancer, AIDS, paralysis. Sometimes it's oppressive beast. Uh, slavery, human trafficking, child poverty. Sometimes it's a lying beast. Lies at work, lies in the marriage. Sometimes the beast has a human face. Terrorists flying planes into buildings, blowing up innocent people on buses. Historically, we've seen these beasts present at the gas chambers of Beslan and on the killing fields of Cambodia and Rwanda. And they're still tormenting the saints of God in Sudan, China, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, Iraq, Iran, North Korea, Pakistan. This is why Daniel was so tormented, by the way. He was so tormented because he read verse 25. Or rather, in a movie, he saw verse 25. He knew that this last beast will track down God's people. And as the verse says, wear out the saints of the Most High. And his heart is broken and troubled over a people that will be racked by persecution. He knows well enough this is not him. He, he knows he's not even going to live to that kingdom. But his heart is broken over God's people. And so you must understand, God still allows evil kingdoms to exist and even to harass and persecute his people. Before it's all over, his people will be close to decimated. But the little horn's persecution of God's people will be for only a limited time. That is a secondary theme in the chapter. Today we live in a world of terrifying beasts. But we shall not live in their world forever. You persevere, friend. You persevere. You say, Kyle, how? Through the love of Christ. Whatever faces you in this life, whether death or life, angels or beasts, dictators or demons, cancer or slavery, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. Application number 3. Even though we know God is coming to make all things right, it's still hard not to concentrate on the beast. After, not before, after Daniel received this glorious vision of the rider on a cloud. I mean, this rider who, who gives peace, this rider who calms anxiety, who gives out kingdoms. After he received that vision, he said in verse 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. And the visions of my head alarmed me. And then he continues in verse 19. Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast. <laughs> what? 
I feel like he's modern day preachers. What? This baffles me. You see the king on the throne and all you want to talk about is how scary this beast is. God gave you this chapter to calm nightmares. Not give them. The goal of this text was not to trash Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or Darius. They never read it. They're dead. The goal was to comfort the fearful Israelites in exile with the message that their sovereign God can bring down even the mightiest kingdom on earth. Ultimate power is not centered in Washington, D.C. or London or Beijing or Moscow. It is in the hands of God. The sea was a picture of universal chaos. You remember the next image we received? God sitting above the chaos. Dear Christian, look up. Fix your eyes on the one seated on the throne. The one riding on a cloud. Madmen like Nero and lunatics like Hitler are merely spawn of the ultimate beast. Satan. These forerunners that we see in our world and we also see in the text, they are horrible. But there is no beast like this beast. There is no beast like Satan. According to Revelation 13, Satan, like his children, will emerge from the sea. This is a beast that you can't handle. I'm telling you to persevere through all other beasts. But I'm telling you, there's one beast you can't handle. And it's this one. It's Satan. There will come a day the day that this chapter is talking about, when all the wrongs will be set right, when all the tyrants will be dethroned, when all that is broken will be fixed, and on that great day, Satan himself will be bound and brought before the throne. And he will answer for his crimes and be cast into the lake of fire forever. Revelation 20.10 The good news is, you don't have to handle that beast. God handles that beast. The last application is application number four. You may face some horrible beasts, but Jesus faced something more horrible than a beast. On the cross, Jesus Christ faced not a leopard with wings, not a mystery creature with ten horns and another one popping out like a jack-in-the-box, not a lion with eagle's wings. No, on the cross, Jesus faced something worse than all of that. He faced the wrath of God poured out on him. God poured out the punishment for all the sins of his children onto Jesus Christ. He faced something more horrible than any beast so that you can have ultimate hope while you face worldly beasts. Friends, we live in a beastly world. But our, our Savior has defeated on our behalf the ultimate beast. What a reason for hope. What a reason for life. What a reason for perseverance.
Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.